Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go. Welcome back. Happy Mother's Day. Great to see you all. Um, the money, if you have any money, throw some money in there. We'll go to CareNet, which is, you know, helps young moms and kids, so you can hardly do better than helping them. That's always a nice thing to do. Uh, there was a handout, just a single page front and back to grab onto. And... Uh, Okay, here we go. I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. John twelve thirty two. So um, this was Rogate in the old calendar, the praying church. So Christ lifts himself up and he makes himself the object of our prayers. So um, I, when I'm lifted up, says Jesus, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all, all persons, all human beings to myself. I'll draw everybody in. Nobody's out. That's good. And then, of course, you know, ascension is coming. So here we go. O Lord, who has promised to grant what we pray in the name of your Son, teach us to pray properly and to love you and to praise you with all the saints in the fullness of life everlasting through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, good. Um, You know, some summers we've taken the summer off, some summers we haven't. We've had more and more people ask that we don't take the summer off. Which is okay, except that usually we kind of take the summer off to recharge and get ideas and work ahead for next year. But we'll try to not take the summer off, and we'll see where that takes us. Um, maybe, uh, there, can you send that around? Sure. So if we can make this deal, you know, we, we won't take the summer off, although probably we'll take a, maybe we'll take a few weeks in August just when everybody is kind of getting kids to college and, you know, gearing up for school and all that. We, we won't take the summer off, but you'll get some different people uh, we'll have to fill in with, you know, the new vicar, the old vicar, uh, you know, Pastor Nelson and I will trade off. But we'll sort of do the best we can. And you won't get quite as thick a set of notes from me. Um, but and maybe we'll chatter a little bit more. But hopefully we can have some fun with this and, and see where it goes. So um, one of the happiest books in the Bible, or maybe one of the happiest sets of books, is First John. So if you've got a Bible, you can find First John. It's way at the end. Um, you know, first, second Peter, first, second, third John, Jude, and Revelation. So these three letters that got read, probably these letters were written uh, to be read in church. They're probably reading sermons, actually, or they were used as sermons. And you, there's some clues in there how the different, you know, whenever it talks about, there's four or five of the uh, letters that talk about giving the kiss of peace, which means the next thing to happen is the Holy Eucharist. Greet the brothers with the kiss of peace means now we'll have the Eucharist. Um, so there's a range of things, but John is such an interesting gospel. First John is interesting because here's this very great theologian who sort of distills everything down uh, to the very basic stuff. So it's always, you know, the people, you know, the best, the best teachers are teachers who can take very complicated things and explain them very clearly so that anybody can understand them. That's the it's always, it's always genius when somebody does that. So, you know, we'll have a go at St. John. It, you know, it's, it's, it's fun and it's basic, but it's so important. Um, you know, for us, the world is not so much about we don't know what to do, we just struggle with doing it. And, and so, um, you know, he'll show us that and it'll be fun. But before that, um, sort of a, uh, a little reminder about the Lectio Divina, which is holy reading. This is classic how to read your Bible stuff. I was stunned this year when I went to give my 
you know, every year I give a couple of lectures at Wheaton College, and I gave one this year, and the room that I was in actually had, you know, this is a stunner, the Lectio Divina on the wall explaining it to students. Now, you, can, you can't really make this up. You know, you have this modern evangelical, uh, you know, Wheaton College place, and on the wall, they've got monastic rules for how to read your scriptures. I mean, you can hardly make that up, which tells you then that the world is changing. Uh, it tells you that the world is changing. You know, all this postmodern stuff we've talked about for almost a decade, um, it's, all sort of, it's all starting to come. In fact, I was reading, uh, one of you has a, uh, not exactly, I think it's a nephew or something who's a church planter, and I get this stuff, and it was so interesting that they said, you know, you don't, you don't, te- you don't start churches by putting information into people. You, you, you start churches by having relationships with people. And the other thing they said is, this is very interesting, this is a church planner now. These are people who are starting churches. He said the other rule is, is you don't spend time with the people who aren't interested. You spend all your time on the people who are interested. We've been saying those two things to you for 10 years, right? Build relationships. It's not about, you know, taking the top of your head off and pouring in knowledge. If there are things you need to know and learn, but the primary thing is living in community and the constant Eucharistic touch, that living voice that has its way with you. So you, even when you can't understand it, faith is not, it is about understanding, but not just about understanding. And then also, you know, and this is a mistake in the church, probably for the last 50 or 100 years in, in the Lutheran church, we've spent most of our time on people who had no interest. And I gave you last week the example of people who don't come to church and then blame it on the church. Or people who are on the rolls and you say, why don't you come to church? Well, nobody ever called me. Boy, that's just not even, there's, that's not even remotely biblical, you know. There's a third commandment, everybody go to church, um, everybody go to church every Sunday, and then the pastor's job is to care for people, how you triage that and sort with people, that, you know, the new trend is, you know, spend time with people who care, and people who don't care, you know, there's another set of stories for them. So, um, anyway, just toward that, uh, this stuff on Lectio Divino, yes, sir? Right. And the word of the Lord grew, right? There's a, and that's all in Acts. The Lord added to their number daily. And then often behind that is the word of the Lord, Lord grew. Um, and then there's even one place where they say, um, I don't know if it was Paul or who they were talking about, they said, um, they were shackled in prison, but the word was free. This fascinating back and forthness. Well, anyway, people often ask how to do their devotions, and we've given you devotional cards and suggested different things. But this ancient, um, this ancient way of reading, I'll just, if you need a different way to go about your devotions, even if you just want to try it for a summer, you might try this. There's four steps to it. And as I was writing this up yesterday, I kind of remembered that uh, Pastor Gainey had put this in his bulletin at his new place. Uh, you know, we trade stuff back and forth. So I completely stole this from him, and I don't feel bad about it at all. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but, if he's, but if he's listening, hey, we love you, but... We stole it. So here you go. Uh, we, but not because he made it up. I mean, this has been around for, you know, a thousand years. This is because he, he had, and it's not exactly his. I mean, I moved some things around because, after all, no pastor can just not move things around, right? <laughs> so the first thing is just the lectio, the reading. So, um, you know, there used to be, or maybe in the last, you know, 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, and this isn't wrong. It's just a little different. There were a lot of, like, read through the Bible in a year kind of Bibles, read this once a day, do this. That's actually good because what happens is you get history and you get information and you get the whole story and you see 
there's just one story in Scripture all the way from Genesis to Revelation. That's fine. But it's not always meditative because as you're reading through the Levitical Code that if a gecko falls on your pillow, that has to be cleansed when you go outside the camp. and ju- You know, people are like, they're, you know, they're nodding off during that. It's good to do that, you know, a time or two or once every so many years or something. But actually, Lectio, Holy Reading, was quite different. Um, in fact, it often had to do with very small bits of scripture and read aloud. Um, I've talked to you, I think, in here and also in women's Bible study. I'm more and more intrigued by this notion that demons cannot read your heart, nor do they know your thoughts. Um, so that's, and I think I told you about this a few weeks ago, and I said one of the things that happens when people complain all the time is they alert the demons of where their, where their soft spots are. And so your complaint, when you constantly live in complaint, you tell the demons where to attack you. The flip side of that would be... Um, Reading the scriptures aloud is like, you know, that high-pitched scream that nobody can take, you know. It's, what you, it's like when they play Ted Nugent outside a place where a guy has really loud, where he's barricaded himself in. At some point, you just got to come out. So, uh, you know, yeah, well, except for you, Ted. Uh, but, but you, you know, the thing is, is um, one of the things that happens, and this is uh, sometimes we, you know, we don't realize that the verbalization of God's name and God's word sort of hallows the space around us. It sort of pushes back the darkness. It pushes back the evil. You know, the whole, the old, all the old things about holding a crucifix, making the sign of the cross. You remember a few weeks ago, probably 10 weeks ago, I, I ran this thing, and I think it was from maybe the second commandment, but Luther in the large catechism says, people are used to saying when a horrible thing happens, you know, God protect us, or God be praised, or God have mercy on us. And I thought he was going to say, that's not a very good thing. You should be more careful with God's name. He says, that's a great habit that everybody should get into. Because the word sort of sanctifies the space around you. Well, in, in, in the Lectio Divina, the first step is to read maybe a smaller passage out loud. And then you just sort of listen to the rhythm of the words. But you're also putting the words into the air. You're sort of sanctifying the space around you. And frankly, you're chasing the demons away. So you, you kind of make the space around you holy with the very act of verbalizing the words. So the first thing you do is you read the text slowly, prayerfully, and aloud. Okay? And you listen to the voice. You just sort of listen to the sound of the words. You might read the same thing over and over two or three times. And you sort of your mind may go one place and another. And often, um, often you know, we're concerned by that. But sort of the classic thing that happens in meditation, and I'm going to kind of move down, is people will say, oh, I'm thinking about, you know, I've got to put gas in the car. I've got to think, you know, I'm thinking about my kids. And I've got to, you know, what happens is then people get all concerned because they can't keep focus. Classically, if you talk to people who, who spend a lot of time in meditation, they, they'll tell you that's fruitless. If you, it's like, okay, one, two, three, nobody think about monkeys, okay? Nobody think about monkeys. <laughs> Don't be thinking about monkeys right now because we're thinking about other stuff, okay? What happens to you, right? So what you do is you simply observe the fact that you're all now thinking about monkeys and I've lost you, right? Okay, so you observe the fact that this entered, like, uh, and, you know, you know, we have this expression where we say we entertain a thought. If you think about that, it's a very literal thing. A thought comes into your head, and you entertain it. Sit down. Would you like tea? Are you comfy there? Put your feet up. You entertain. The, you, you, you understand the notion that you sometimes are distracted by guests who come at the wrong time, and you just sort of say, why don't you sit there for a moment? I'm busy. I've got something on the stove, okay? 
So you don't try to avoid those necessarily. You, sit, you recognize it, and you sort of ask them to have a seat. Okay? Because you're working with something else, this verse that's out loud. So the first thing is, read a little bit. And I just encourage you, if you're not doing anything else, go ahead and take First John, because it's glorious. It's beautiful, it's simple, it's practical, it's easy, and it's hard. Because it's about loving other people, which is not, you know, not a natural thing. So the first thing is the lectio, the reading. You read it aloud. Second thing is um, meditatio, that you start to think about the text. Now, you think about the text in a couple of ways. One is you just say, what do you find striking in the text? Um, so I was, I'll give you an example today. As, as Pastor was reading the uh, Old Testament reading, which is from Acts, because... It's a New Testament book, but it's the Old Testament story. It was interesting that it was interesting to me that when um, the disciple was speaking, he said, "You crucified Jesus. He rose from the dead." But see, it wasn't uncommon for people to see apparitions, nor was it uncommon for people to 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 um, imagine uh, that they've seen something or heard something. But do you remember what the next line was? We, it says, you crucified Jesus, but he rose from the dead, and he appeared to us. Now, you're not home yet, because people still have imaginations, they still have apparitions. Does anybody remember what the next thing he said? He appeared to us, and he ate and drank. Ghosts don't eat and drink. See what, how interesting that is? I mean, that's all about the incarnation. Ghosts don't eat and drink. So what, what basically what they said is, you think this is our imagination? It's not our imagination. He appeared to us, he ate, and he drank. It's why, you know, the gospel reading right after Easter, remember Jesus is on the, fish, uh, on the, on the beach broiling fish. Hey, I'm making dinner. Let's eat. Right? Okay, so you begin to pick things up that you might want to just reflect on, um, and you ask what strikes you. And then also the important thing is, and this is where, um, in some ways, meditation and contemplation run together, which is you begin to reflect on what difference that makes to you. And you begin to imagine where this particular text could get some traction in your own life. Now, with First John, it's going to be extraordinarily easy. We're going to just do an example of it here in a second. But it'll be really, really easy for you to see what the implications are in your own life. Um, what we're going to do a little bit, if we get there today, is the difference between light and darkness. It is the easiest, it is by far the easiest way to diagnose a Christian life, light and darkness. Anything done in the darkness is always evil. Always. Anything in the darkness, is, anything done in the light is always good because the light has a way of purifying. So it's the simplest thing. If people tell you a secret, if they say, I want to tell you this but don't tell, anything done in, a, in, in the darkness um, is, is evil. Anything done in the light is good. Especially when light has a double meaning. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. The light no darkness can overcome. Okay, We'll do that in just a second. But it's those very simple things. So you start to reflect, for example, on your own life. Where are there dark spots? Where are the things that you won't reveal? What are the things that you won't confess? What are the things that you're involved in that are darkness? What are the things that torture you that are darkness that need to be brought to light? What would your life be like if those things were brought to light and you had more light and less darkness in your life? Do you see? Are you following kind of what I'm saying? So you start, to, you start to ask yourself questions about the text as it applies to your own life. What strikes you, what matters, but especially, what does it mean for my own life? 
And then out of that, oratio, which is you begin to pray. Ora pro nobis, pray for us. Oratio, this great. And Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, you can have. Or whatever you find in the scriptures, it's yours. So you begin to say, let's just take the light-darkness thing. You begin to find, you've got a couple of dark spots. You say, these really troubled me. They troubled me for a long time. They're really bad habits. I keep doing it. Um, If you all went to a spiritual director, uh, the spiritual director would give you lines to say like, um, it's my arrogance that always causes me so much trouble. You know, one of the things, and spiritual direction is all of a sudden huge in the church. That means the Lutherans will get to it about 2040. Um, but right now, there was, there's an association of spiritual directors that had maybe 600 members you know, 15 years ago. Now there's something like 20,000. Because all these people are coming and saying, how do I live my life? Which in some sense is normal pastoral care, but often they're um, people who are only given to this. It was classic if you would go to a monastery or you would... Um, take a retreat, you say as you check in, I'd like, I'd like spiritual direction, and they would assign somebody who all they do is what they call sacred listening. So they listen to you, but the deal is, it's not so much like people, see the problem for us is what people often do, sometimes people come in and ask the pastor, but often they come in to argue their case with the pastor. That's not spiritual direction. Spiritual direction is you walk in and you say, here's what it is, and then the pastor says, this is your diagnosis. This is your prescription. Now go. And from the moment you step out the door, you do exactly as your director has told you to do. Not because your director is mean to you or authoritative, but because your, your director has been, oh, I don't know, praying 10 hours a day for 30 years. And that changes a person, and you begin to see things in a different way. So there's a whole... This, this used to be a strong suit of Lutherans. The Care of Souls used to be an extraordinarily strong suit. In fact, in fact, there's a famous book from Luther of letters that he wrote to people when there was a suicide, when a child died, when a spouse left. It's, it's a classic book, and, and Luther just sort of spills out what people are supposed to do. That's been lost for whatever reason in the Lutheran church. It's all coming back. The problem is I'm going to die before it gets here, but nevertheless, you know, enjoy it when you get it because it'll be really, really good for you, and it all comes out of this classic thing. So you read the text aloud. You say to yourself, what does that text mean? You say, how does that text work in my life? If I actually listened to that text, how would that be different? How would that change me, change my family, change my kids, change my church, change my life, change how I go, to, go, go take care of my job? How would I do that? From that, you begin to pray. Lord, these are the things that terribly troubled me about myself. But I pray that you forgive me and strengthen me, help me to rely on others for, for their prayers and their strength, that you change my community and you move things forward. And every, every day something comes out of a text that way. And then finally, it always ends up, and you know this, because this is how the Psalms often end, which is you're extraordinarily thankful that God listens to you, that he's still your God, that he gives, him, that he gives himself to you in his Eucharist, that he cares for you, and that he hasn't left you. You know, that you're not alone, that you're not unloved. This is just classic. People have been praying this way, I mean, for a thousand years in many situations, and it's just basic. It goes back way before that, but it kind of gets its name for the last thousand years. It's just something that would probably be helpful for you. So I just, if, you don't, if you're not doing anything for devotions for the summertime, you might just um, try this. You read the text aloud. You try to understand what the text means in your circumstance. 
You pray for help about your circumstance. So you may read a text and get something completely different than I do because we're very different people. But in the end, you rejoice that God has gathered you up and made you the church. Um, and maybe we don't say enough about that as pastors. I mean, people often... I already have two, I already have two emails just since from two different students saying, what do I do for my devotions for the summer, which I welcome, you know. Um, College-age kids who are saying, I want, I want to work on this, what do I do? That hasn't been an obvious question for Lutherans for a long time. It really should be, though, because it's something we're, we were once really good at and we need to regain and be good at again. So many things, you know, we've lost, but we've found them now, so let's play with them. That makes sense? So just questions about how you proceed? So what will happen is we'll probably try to proceed in that way as we go. You sure you're okay? You're very quiet, Byron. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Did you get all that, or do I need to repeat that for you? Did you get it? Yes, you did, or you didn't? That's all right. I should have given you the microphone. So basically, the sense was, growing up, he wasn't really taught about demons. Later, when he did a little teaching himself, he realized the reality of demons. In fact, I just talked to somebody this week, an, an old pastor, and I was explaining something that I was... Um, I asked a little advice. His first comment was, it's enough to make you think that demons are real. That was his first comment to me. I'm like, well, you know, I don't take much convincing. Uh, <laughs> but, but the thing is, is uh, the demonic is a real, is a real force, and demo- demons are real persons. I mean, they're just angels gone bad. If you believe in angels, you believe in demons. It's that simple. Almost everybody believes in angels. People who don't believe in demons are just kind of fooling themselves. So, but the key thing, there's a couple of key things when, when you're working with demons you have to remember. The great, the great line is C.S. Lewis where he says, when it comes to demons, best not to know too little, best not to know too much. Um, so the basic stuff is you believe in the reality of it. You don't um, touch it unless you have the strength to touch it. In desperate pastoral situations, you never go alone. Never go. So I'll just give you an example. Um, John Kline, when John Kleinig was here last summer, and the good thing about John is, you know, he tells me all the stuff that he doesn't, you know, say in broader lectures. I think I can tell this one, um, but I, I have other ones that I couldn't. The one, the one thing is, he does a lot of third world work, and there's a lot more demonic stuff. But one of the things is, he had a friend who's a doctor who bought new offices, and. Um, there was just a chill over the office complex, and especially in one particular room, there was just darkness. Everybody who came in felt it. Things would always go wrong in that room. The doctor can figure it out. He finally got John, and John got another pastor, and they exercised the building. What they found out later was that that office space had been used for um, illegal abortions, and that particular room was the room in which most of them were done. And so, you know, you just have this... Or I'll give you another one. I talked to Gaining this week. We have a mutual friend, um, acquaintance is better, who's a, a Catholic father who was on retreat. And the place where he was on retreat also had lay people, and a lay person killed himself in the room below uh, while, the, while this father was there this last week. And um, the father was asked by the cleaning staff, once they sort of took care of everything, um, to come and exercise and bless the room. And we've done that ourselves here. We've had, and it's not always people in the congregation. I mean, you have friends and they get hurt and we take care of it and blah, blah. But we've had, uh, so it's non-members, nobody you would know, but kind of an acquaintance who found us, or I'm not even sure, but we ended up 
we probably have done, this has been an odd year, we haven't done any, but before this we'd do two or three a year, but we had done one where there was a suicide attempt in a house and kind of everything had gone wrong. There was another one where um, there was a particular mirror that talked all the time. People would see images. Um, there's another one where there was a room where all the animals would go crazy all the time. We had a vicar once who we said, uh, you know, a vicar. We had a vicar who said, here's what we're going to do. This is going to be particularly troublesome. Don't, um, uh, in this particular case, Gainig was the lead and I was behind him. And uh, we said, we're going to set, you know, we're going to set up. This is where we're going to go. We're not going to enter the house by ourselves. Everybody have your stuff, and then we're going we're gonna to do this. And then, so what's the vicar do? He grabs the crucifix, and he runs into the house. And we're like, uh, he's on his own. <laughs> I'm not going in after him until we're set, you know? You're on your own, idiot. I mean, you've got to be able to follow directions, which is another thing, which is don't get in over your head. So um, you ask for, you never go, you recognize it, you assess it, you never get in over your head. You always take somebody else with you. You don't go alone. And here's the other thing about the demonic. It is shocking and boring. So what happens is you have, when you have something demonic, it just, it just, it's, like, it's like being hit in the face with a hammer. I remember Russ Smith, who used to hit a lot of home runs in ninth grade, one stepped out of the batting, I just thought of this today, one stepped out of the batter's box and hit me over the head taking a full cut. Do you think this explains anything? I haven't thought about this for years. <laughs> That's a stunner for you. But actually, then it's pretty boring after a while. You know, you get hit in the head with a baseball bat, and then you kind of move on with your life. Um, the demonic is much like that. It's often stunning and shocking, and it's like this. But then what happens is, is it does, um, the surprise ends, and eventually it runs out of steam, although it's key to just be able to outlast it. A lot of the key to temptation is just to be able to outlast it. You just have to get up and do your business, which is why, you know, for example, having the daily Eucharist here is such a deal because, I mean, you can't, uh, to be able to go to the Eucharist every day is a great anti-demonic touch. You know, you carry, as Paul says, the wounds of Jesus within you as you go. It does, of course, mean that he got wounded, he got beaten up, but it also means you carry the very wounds of Jesus on the cross in your body. And you are repulsive to the demonic in that way. Which is why then now all these other things make sense, like you know, keeping the disciplines, saying your prayers. It's not because you know, somebody's doing this to you. It's that the world is a very difficult place. The world is darkness. And you go out as sons of light. And the moment you're baptized, you're, somebody told me this. I learned so much. Um, see, this is the stuff you don't know unless you go to jail. So um, I was talking to somebody who was sorting, uh, sorting people. I don't know if it was Cook County or where they are, but I don't, and I don't even know why I was talking about this. But I was talking to an intake guy who said, you, you all know this, that when you go to Cook County, they sort you according to your gang, right? They ask you your name and they ask you your gang affiliation. Do you know this? No. And then they say, oh, yeah, because, then, because what will happen if you're put in the wrong cell with the wrong gang? What happens to you? They'll kill, kill you. Yeah, so he says, so anybody who, they're always a little struck when somebody comes in who doesn't have a gang, and they say to them, you know, if we don't put you in a separate place, if you're not in a gang when you come in, you'll be in a gang by the time you come out. You know, it's like that. As soon as you get baptized, you're sorted. You've taken a side. So uh, it's Luther's thing about when he baptized the kid, and then, you know, he ad-libbed, and he, you know, he said, well, we haven't done this kid any favors. You know, you shouldn't ad-lib, but he actually told the truth. You baptize your kid, you put a big target on him. It's like, you know, you, they've chosen a side now. 
And that's why, you know, the C.S. Lewis thing, how did this whole thing become about demons? The C.S. Lewis thing, where he says, um, the best thing you can do to a man is just, if, if a man's caught in sin, not coming to church, not paying attention, not saying his prayers, the best advice, you remember this in Screwtape, is to leave him alone. You know, don't poke, don't poke a sleeping dog. Just leave him alone. Because as the demon says, one day he'll wake up and he'll find out that things are very, very different than he thought it would be. It's too late. Exactly right. See? So anyway, part of this is just a way, you know, a lot of the stuff that we talk about is discipline and obedience. It's not because there's some line and you have to, it's because it's good for you. Because it protects you from the demonic. Because it pushes back the darkness. Because it strengthens you for what you're going to, what's going to happen to you. Because... At some point, it's why we talk about demons possessing you, because at some point, you're kind of there for their use. You know, at some point, um, and it does even happen with people. I can tell you, I've been around people who I just, you know, it's just clear to me they're demonic. Um, I mean, I, the stories I could tell you. I can remember, I had a professor who was at the, when he was a, when he was a pastor before, he was a professor. This is very old. This guy was, like, he was old when I was young, so this is old school but they had, he'd gone to see a member uh, who had been thrown into a very old, insane asylum that had an oak door five inches thick with a little peephole. And, you know, they said, this is your guy. And, you know, he looks inside, and the guy, um, he looks inside, and there's the guy across the room. And he turns around to talk to the guard, and suddenly the door explodes. And then the guy says, hey, Pastor, how you doing? Okay, now, you can just, you explain that to me. And, anyway, and this was the most low-key, like, he was the guy who taught pastoral theology. He was like the low, most low-key, non-sensational guy. But the basics, though, I might as well just do it all. The basic marks of the demonic are other voices, knowing things you shouldn't know, um, and superhuman strength, and also the ability to fly, to levitate. Those are kind of the markers for what's demonic. So if you kind of see that, you have to be very careful with you know, what's going on. But this was an act of sort of superhuman strength. This guy splintered this oak door, and then stands and talks to him. That is spooky kind of stuff. Um, anyway, you never want to get there. And it is out of the eye. Uh, and the thing is, is, that's not the sort of stuff that usually kills you. What usually kills you is the normal demonic stuff. Lying, gossip, manipulation, sexual abuse, um, stealing. You know, those kind of the basic stuff are what normally kills a person in a congregation. It's usually not the huge things that kills you. It's usually the little things. The huge things, you can see them coming and you know, you can marshal the forces. And by the way, everybody has an interest then, right? I mean, if you have, you know, if the mirror is talking, suddenly everybody is interested. You know, if the dogs won't stop howling in a particular place. Um, actually, I was at a, I was with Gainig once where we did one where this dog had howled nonstop. And at the point of the Eucharist, the dog went silent and never howled again. I don't, you explain that to me. I mean, I, you know what? All we do is go in and do what we're supposed to do. But, you, you know, you explain that to me. Um, it's like the one where, I, you know, you, I, we, I don't know, we should tell you all these stories where there was this baby in the NICU whose heartbeat, they were so worried about it, it was going to die because its heartbeat was <clears throat> twice and twice what it should be. And Ganey went in and anointed the kid and blessed it. And uh, the nurse came rushing in and said, what just happened? He's like, why? She said, because... For the first time since he's been born, the heartbeat's normal. They take the kid home, and he's been good ever since. I don't know. You explain that to me. Could be a fight. I wouldn't pick a fight if I were you. 
Um, I'm being serious now. And we did this on women's, and we did this. So do you fight them, or do you just leave? So two things. Um, one is, as you, from women's Bible study, you remember that your prayers are about standing your ground. So you have to defend what's holy, right? So basically, there's a, there's a gulf around what's holy. This is why, I'll just give you an example. This is why sexual abuse in the church, especially by pastors, especially in a sanctuary, is the most antichrist act there is. There's nothing more antichrist than that. Because everything is upside down. A person who's supposed to be a spiritual father has become a tormentor. A person who's supposed to care has become a predator. A place that's supposed to be holy has been defiled. You know, so, so the question is, when you, uh, when you engage what is demonic, um, you, there's some things you can't give up. You know, there's something, there, you have to, so you have to hold, the, you know, this is the stand firm, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who should, but you stand firm and you say your prayers. So you have to defend your perimeter. That's very different than um, launching out. One of the things that gives me the heebies and the jeebies is every once in a while somebody will show up at some summer camp, we'll say, what you do? So there are some girls there, but we don't worry, the camp counselors helped us, we cast their demons out. I mean, this used to happen more when I was, and I'd be always like, who are you and what, you know, what do you think you're after? And even for priests, you know, it's not like all priests who normally do exorcisms, although any priest can, but there's a special, you know, there's a special group of priests who do this. I've told you this story a hundred times, but you know the exorcist was a true story. And it's about a Missouri Senate boy. Did you know that? From the East Coast. And they brought him to the seminary, and the seminary professors were like, yeah, we don't know what to do. So they took him to the Jesuits at St. Louis U, and it was the St. Louis U Jesuits who took care of it because they knew what to do. But I actually have a friend, a college friend, who was married by one of the priests involved with that. This priest was 25, and he turned out to be her parish priest later. So he was an old man when this happened. He was 25, and actually this part is true. He, uh, from the movie, although I haven't seen a lot of the movie, I got no interest in watching it, he did um, go to bed one night at 25 and woke up the next morning with all his hair turned white, okay, rest of his life. So you can explain all this stuff to me or not, but I've seen enough stuff and seen enough things go bad that I am really respectful. And it just happened enough times that it's a real thing. You don't mess with it unless you know what you're doing, but you're not powerless. So you make the sign of the cross, you wear a crucifix or hold a crucifix, you pray aloud, you read scripture aloud. These things are automatic defenses. So you don't have to be terrorized by this or afraid of it, but you shouldn't, like, you know, it's like you wouldn't go over to BP and start mixing things up in the lab unless you knew what you were doing, right? Because, yeah, right. So, you know, yes, please. Partly, but usually it's things in the future. Usually it's things, um, but see, you have to be very careful here because, so think about this, two of the marks of what's demonic are speaking in different tongues, Pentecost, and knowing things you don't know, prophecy. So the, the key is not just knowing things, it's knowing things you shouldn't know. That is, you've gotten illicit, illicit information somewhere. Gossip does probably fit into that category. But it's getting, it's not that the knowledge isn't available, it's that it hasn't been given to you, it's illicit. Because if you read the scriptures, all the times the Lord gives prophets to see ahead, but there are other ways to see ahead that are not given by, by, by prophets. You know, they're, they're, it's given by the demonic. And if you're, see, this is the thing. This so runs against our grain. 
because we all think that we should know everything, right? Guess what? It's not good for us all to know everything. And thank God, I mean, as I get older, I don't want to know anything else about anybody, especially anything bad about people. I'm full up. If I never heard another bad thing about anybody, I'd be fine with that. See, there are things that it's not that, so it's to whom knowledge is given. Or take tongues on Pentecost. So what's the difference between when people, and you've seen this, it's a classic, in fact, it is probably the most classic way of the demonic. People sort of come, their, their voices, voices come out of them that are not their own. They're clearly possessed by another spirit. They have another spirit. Okay, so how would you sort the voices? How do you know if you're dealing with what's demonic or what's not demonic? It's very simple. How? Light and darkness, but especially if it confesses Jesus Christ as the incarnation and welcomes that. All light and darkness is, dis- is the all light and darkness is determined by whether it confesses. We're going to read this if we ever get there. Uh, yeah, uh, is, uh, I didn't mean for the preamble to be this long, but here's the deal: all light and darkness is determined by whether you welcome the Word made flesh, whether you welcome the incarnation in all its aspects, in all that that means. That's how you know. That's how you know what's what's good and evil. And that's true across... See, the, the good thing about this is so simple, but it works in every situation. And when people say, oh, I can't say, or I can't tell, or don't you tell, or this is a secret, or what people who abuse children do, they say, they say often two things. There are two things that children are abused that are often told. One is, um, this is going to be our secret. That's one thing that's told to children who are abused. The second thing is, if you tell, no one will ever love you again. Well, there's a third thing, too, which is often there's threats involved. If you tell, I'll kill your father, I'll kill your mother, right? But you can see how those, you see how simple that, those are such simple threats, but it's just pure darkness. Because there should be no more valuable relationship than a mother and a daughter, right? It's Mother's Day. You should, you know, that's, a, that's your natural relationship. So everything dark is unnatural. Yes, please? Uh, people disagree about this. I actually don't think. Uh, I actually don't think that a. Um, I don't think, and I'm disagreeing with Lutheran church fathers of 150 years ago. I don't think an active, baptized at the Eucharist, saying his prayers, not exposing himself to evil, human being can be possessed by a demon because to have the demon enter the Holy Spirit has to be pushed out. Okay? Now, people disagree about this. And people, people kind of shave the line and say, you know, bodies can be taken over and people, can, people are not damned simply because of that and how that works. But, I'm, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a point that's for contention, but you probably don't want to get all the way there because what you want to do is um, never... What's the, Vic, where's the vicar? He's not here. We're the guys who served. What's the first? What's the first thing I tell every vicar? Yeah, you don't stay out of. Tr- you don't. Yeah, there you go. You don't get out of trouble. You stay out of trouble. So that's my advice to you. You don't. The first the first rule of life is you don't get out of trouble. You stay out of trouble. It's the first thing to tell your kids. You don't don't get in trouble and then have to call me in the middle of the night. Now they will. Just so you know. But um, you know. Yes, Bruce. Oppression is very common. Oppression just simply means sort of the darkness weighs on you. And that happens in all forms. 
That happens when people have sins that they... So here's the interesting thing. Um, you know, people don't... This is actually all the stuff we don't do, but we should do. Like, we don't distinguish mortal and venial sins anymore, but it would be helpful if we did. Venial sins oppress, 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 oppress. If you have a bad habit, if you... Let's just take pornography. It's so common, but it's just... It's so common, and it's everywhere, and it's easy, and it's unfortunate. And, you know, the great joy of the last few years that women are as bad at the, at the, about this as men are, Okay. You know, the first, the first bit, usually, here's the thing, it does stick with you, and it does sort of color, but it is this sequential thing where people finally are possessed by it. That's different than, um, or it can be different than, for example, murder. Murder is a mortal sin. You murder another human being, you've lost faith, and you're destined for hell, period, okay? So some things, oppression things, do run their way out, but... Um, possession things, mortal sins, you've gone to the dark side. That's a real thing that you've gone to the dark side. The other thing, you and I can have a cup of coffee and talk about because part of the problem is there's no time at the level you're talking about. And as soon as there's no time, our normal categories of talking don't even work anymore. And so it kind of becomes speculation. But the problem is, is I, just, I just give you the point that um, it can be easy things like Somebody you know is going to arrive here in two days. Well, I mean, that's already, they're on the way, but you don't know they're on the way. It can be those kinds of things. It doesn't have to be the cataclysmic, you know, China and Russia and the oil fields and blah, blah, you know. It can just be, it can be normal stuff, but stuff that people shouldn't know or shouldn't, shouldn't know about. Yes, it was. But of course, we. Yeah, and what do you do if he doesn't tell the truth? You stone him. You can't, no, you don't reject him. You kill him, which is why when people stand up in a church and give prophecies, usually the proper response is, we'll see. But the clock is ticking. In the Old Testament, if you stood up and said, this is the, this is the word of the Lord, what happens is, is if it doesn't happen, they stone you. It's not that you're just rejected or put out of the camp. It's that you're killed, actually. We were, they were much more particular about saying, this is the word of the Lord. Everybody around Wheaton says, this is what God wants. Mostly I say, Really? Because what you see is that nobody's willing to stand up and take their medicine as a prophet, which is if you say this is the word of the Lord and it doesn't happen, stoning is the penalty. Death is the penalty for speaking for God when you're not supposed to speak for God. How did I get here? (laughs) Uh, But the thing is, is this isn't all bad because this is how summer can be. You can bring what you want and we can talk about it. I will at least, though. uh, No, I actually don't have time, so I won't. I'll give you an assignment instead. Read the first chapter of 1 John. Very easy. Ten verses. You can take what I've given you here. And I've just given you an example of what I think is the most important thing, which is, you know, hearable, seeable, touchable, word made flesh. The first five verses is, here's how you can sort light and darkness. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in flesh, if you believe the second person of the Trinity took flesh from the Blessed Virgin Mary, lived, died, lived again, and ate and drank, you know, after the... Then, that's the side of light. But that's the first thing, not the last thing. And so then, you are meant to live in his image. How do you find his image? The Ten Commandments. And then the other side is, if you don't, the next five verses are, um, you know, uh, if, if you don't believe that, then you've fallen into darkness. Which is why, and I'll just say this, but I'll say this again next week, this is why the Eucharist is so important. 
the Eucharist is the confession of light. It is the confession that the body and blood, of, the incarnate body and blood of Jesus is present. This is why you have a body on the cross. This is why you rejoice in saints, because saints had bodies and they took punishment. This is why we rejoice in you. This is why we say in the creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body, not just the resurrection of the dead, in the resurrection of the body. This is why you should love your body, because whatever your body's like, you're going to get it back. And it's going to be yours forever, perfected, of course. But this is why people don't have to have all this body image stuff. The great cure for it is the incarnation. The great cure is that Jesus loved you enough to give you that body, and your responsibility is to care for that body, right? Which has a whole host of implications about drugs and alcohol and sex and everything else. But our, we are so far from that anymore, people can't even hear it. But maybe we can hear it. See, maybe in the church we can still hear it. Maybe we can, you know, we should, you know, someday we should talk about sex for about a year, um, because sex has obliterated everything else. And the reason it's obliterated everything else is because we don't understand what it means to be incarnate. We don't understand what it means to have flesh in the image of Jesus. That's why we don't understand our marriages. Because we don't understand what it is to be to love as God loves the church. There's just so much work to do. There's so much to do. Um, but the best place to start is to read your scriptures and say your prayers. Go to the Eucharist. And then it does. I mean, it's the gospel for today it eventually just has its way with you if you just please wouldn't reject it. So, and that's a, that authority, that obedience is a gift. It's, a, it's not a penalty. It's, it's life, you know. So anyway, um, all right, we'll play again next week. But read, just read First John 1. It's fun. It's great. And just even if that's all you read this week, even if you read a verse or two, just kind of think to yourself, read it out loud. What does this mean for me? How could I pray this? And I'm really thankful that, that the story turned out this way. Okay? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.